Well, today we want to continue in our uh, study of uh, the book of Acts, and uh, we are still in the ninth chapter. This is going to, this could break records of being in the same chapter uh, for weeks at a time, right? Because we're not even going to finish it uh, today. Uh, uh, that uh, there's this ninth chapter, as you can tell, is a key chapter, is a pivotal chapter uh, in the book of Acts. So uh, there's no uh, need to rush through these things. Uh, and uh, we want to really uh, get the most out of it. We're still talking about Paul, Shaul, Saul, right? And his coming, his experience with coming to know the Lord. So we've talked about uh, the experience itself. We talked about how he was on his way to Damascus and what happened to him and, and his experience of coming to know the Lord then. And then uh, last week we talked about uh, his going to Damascus and his interaction with Ananias. And, and there we talked uh, about calling and the calling uh, on his life. Now today we want to talk a little bit about the aftermath. So then what happened to him? And it's kind of interesting because we don't know exactly what the timetable is. People have written volumes on what they think the timetable is. Uh, we don't know exactly, but we know in general. So we want to take a look at that today and uh, just understand how that might uh, relate even to our own lives. So uh, in, in Acts chapter 9, okay, we want to uh, really begin uh, uh, probably a little bit of uh, overlap. We want to begin uh, with verse 19 in the second part of verse 19. Verse 19 in our English translation is probably very interesting looking in your Bible because there's a new part that begins in the middle of the verse. Now, uh, uh, people that are much smarter than I probably could answer the question, why not make the second half of verse 19, verse 20? I don't know the answer. But for some reason, in the middle of verse 19, we have like a new paragraph. And that's where we want to begin. Okay, and that's where it says, Now, for several days, he was with the disciples, who were, at, uh, who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Yeshua in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. So actually we can stop there for, for a second. So we see for several days he was, at the he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. You can only imagine what those several days were like because they probably just could not get over the, the people he was close to. This Judas, the home of Judas, Ananias, maybe a few others. They probably could not get over the fact that here, the one who was the chief persecutor now uh, is the one who uh, is preaching the word, believing in Yeshua, and they were probably pouring into his life and maybe wanting to hear over and over again uh, the story of what happened uh, on the road uh, uh, to Damascus. You know, think of uh, who would be 
you, you know, some of the, uh, anti, we call them anti-missionaries. That's what they're called. In fact, you don't hear too much about them anymore. But there was a day when they were really uh, uh, big news. Anti-missionaries, people who, whose uh, whole quote-unquote calling was to dissuade Jewish believers from believing in, in Yeshua. I remember a man by the name of Abensione Kravitz, uh, who was uh, the West Coast man uh, for Jews for Judaism. Uh, not Jews for Jesus, Jews for Judaism. And, uh, and I used to talk to him on the phone. And uh, I remember one day in particular, he said, Howard, come, let's go to Palm Springs. You and me, will get a hotel room, we'll talk uh, about all of these things, you know? And uh, his goal was, had one goal in mind. Of course, I had one goal in mind too. But he had one goal in mind, and that was to dissuade me from being a believer in Yeshua. I remember in Cleveland, uh, uh, a very well-known uh, person uh, who was engaged in this work was from Cleveland. Uh, and I remember a, a Jewish believer in Cleveland who happened to buy a house that was located next door to where this uh, man grew up. And uh, one day, uh, this fellow came to visit his parents, this anti-missionary came to visit his parents in Cleveland. And he got into a conversation with the next door neighbor. And sadly, 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 this uh, Jewish believer renounced uh, Yeshua, renounced the name of the Messiah. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but imagine one of these people coming to faith, like all of a sudden, coming and believing. Uh, you know, and testifying, we might wonder, you know, is this for real or what, right? We might need to uh, investigate this uh, uh, a little more. And that is what it was like for Saul of Tarsus to come to believe and, and for people like Ananias to uh, come to him, lay hands on him, tell him that God was going to use him mightily and also that he was going to suffer. For his name. And so here he is for several days with the disciples who were at Damascus. And remember, we said last time that at Damascus, Damascus was a big city. There were indeed Jewish believers in Damascus. And this is about uh, 18 months to two years uh, after the uh, resurrection of, of Yeshua. So uh, we see already that the gospel uh, had spread. Now it says, and, he immediately, and immediately he began to proclaim Yeshua in the synagogues, saying he is the son of God. So, you know, it was bubbling up inside of him. This was not actually the beginning of his quote-unquote ministry that God gave him. I would suggest that begins later on, years later, with Barnabas at Antioch. But here... He's doing the natural thing that came to him. The natural thing that came to him was to share the good news with people. And you know, something for us all to remember. Remember last week we said we all have a calling. We all are called. Remember we, we read verses from Ephesians chapter 4 that uh, in a walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul uses the word calling not 
always about a specific calling, but the fact that we are all called. We're all called to testify. We're all called to walk with the Lord. And something for us to understand that, that while one of the benefits of that is assurance uh, and maybe a sense of, of shalom and peace, uh, and experiencing the chesed, the loving kindness of God and all of that. The calling is to testify. The calling is, to use the old-fashioned word, to be a witness. The calling is to uh, let the world know in word and deed that Yeshua is the Messiah. That's the calling uh, that we have. And, and so here, right at the beginning, he is doing what came supernatural, let's call it came supernaturally to him. And that is, he goes to the synagogues uh, and uh, testifies. You know, I remember this in my own life. Uh, I remember when I first became a believer, there was a zeal uh, there of uh, just, uh, you know, sharing the message and, and a, a real quick story. Uh, I had been a Messiah follower a year to two years, and I was in college in Buffalo, New York, uh, and uh, uh, and I went to a uh, I went to a meeting um, by um, I can't think of of his name right now, but the man who started the Jewish Defense League. Oh, I can't think of his name, but anyway, he was a uh, a Jewish radical. And the Jewish Defense League, uh, you know, believed in, uh, uh, you, you know, um, just using force sometimes uh, against anti-Semites and how all Jews need to get on the, get on the bandwagon. Uh, and so I attended uh, th this meeting at the university. And he was just railing, and, railing away and said that, you know, you know, that if we would all move to Israel and if we would all... Uh, be observant in Torah, the Messiah would come, right? And so then there was a time for questions. And I heard, oh, the Messiah would come. Well, that's like a cue, right? This is like my cue. So I raised my hand and he called on me. Uh, and, uh, and I said, Rabbi, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned the Messiah, but I want to tell you, and in those days, this is exactly what I said. In those days, this is what I said. But I have to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so immediately, this was, well, let me just say this was not well received. Okay. Uh, and so uh, uh, everybody kind of turned around. I was sitting toward the back uh, and everybody turned around like he's one of those, you know, uh, and hands went up. And what do we say to these people? And I can still, I can still see him banging on the lectern. And, and I remember what he said to me. He said, you're spitting on your grandparents' grave. Uh, and, and he went on and on and railed against me and the likes, the likes of people like me. And uh, well, you know, you don't forget that kind of thing. You know, you know what I'm saying? That's sort of like right there. But the point is uh, that it was like bubbling inside of me. Uh, and I, I, in those days, had a habit of uh, taking moments like that. If you remember, I probably have shared this. When I told my parents 
that I was a believer in Yeshua. Now, I didn't yell it out like that, but I was in a synagogue on Rosh Hashanah in the middle of a really huge synagogue. You know, if you're Jewish, you know what I'm talking about. Like thousands of people were there on Rosh Hashanah, right? And the rabbi was talking about Jews and Christians. Nothing bad, something about Jews and Christians. And again, it was like, uh-oh, I feel it like bubbling up inside of me. And I turned to my mother and I said, you know, Mom, the rabbi's talking about Jews and Christians. But, you know, uh, a, a Christian really is a, a, a Jewish or Gentile person that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, you know? And, and I went on and, and she could tell that, like, I had been to the other side, you know? I knew too much, right? Uh, she said, do you believe this way? And I just nodded my head yes. And, well, the rest is history after that. But uh, I remember those days of uh, that kind of zeal. And it wasn't necessarily because of any particular calling, uh, particularly on me, but just the sense of I know the Messiah, you know? Uh, and, uh, and, and so I remember those days, uh, those days quite well. So here he is proclaiming Yeshua in the synagogues. By the way, you see that, and just like in the rest of the book of Acts, even on his journeys, uh, he goes to the synagogues. And he says, he is the son of God. He is the son of God. And so isn't that interesting that that's what it says here? Uh, not just he's the Messiah, saying he is the son of God. First of all, in the first century, saying that somebody is the son of God is a, like a euphemism of he's King Messiah. This is King Messiah. Like from Psalm 2, you know, behold my son, my only begotten son, right? And when Yeshua was immersed, uh, we read uh, about that, you know, how he is the chosen one, the son, right? And, uh, and of course, you know, uh, when uh, uh, Yeshua was being uh, interrogated uh, by the Sanhedrin, you read, uh, for example, in Mark chapter 14, uh, in verse 61, this question that he's asked. But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? Son of God meant, Are you the King of Israel? Are you the Messianic King of Israel? And this is what Paul says. This is now what he knows. You know, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, the message is beautifully simple. He Notice what it says even. I, uh, again, it says, he began to proclaim Yeshua. Not some long, uh, extended uh, doctrinal uh, tone, you know? But uh, he began to proclaim Yeshua. The centrality of Yeshua is very striking. He is the Son of God. Doesn't it kind of remind you a little bit of what we read about Philip? Uh, as it just comes to uh, comes to my mind in the previous chapter, in Acts chapter eight, in verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Messiah to them. And so here it says uh, Paul was proclaiming Yeshua to them. He is the Son of God. So may I encourage us all that we all have a testimony. I hope that we all have this kind of boldness. I hope that we're sensitive enough and 
find it refreshing enough that it, it, it like percolates inside of us and it bubbles up and we have to, uh, you know, there are moments where we just have to say it, right? Yeshua is the Messiah. I, I, I remember many, many, many years ago giving a message saying, you know, the gospel is not come and visit Beth Messiah. Uh, the gospel is not messianic Judaism, per se, if you know what I'm trying to say. The gospel, the good news is the Messiah has come. Now, uh, it's very helpful to proclaim it uh, to Jewish ears in a Jewish way because we want to be understand, we want to be understood by what we say. And 2,000 years later, to proclaim Messiah, to proclaim Yeshua, there's a ton of baggage that goes just with the word, <laughs> you know? Uh, for example, uh, I, you know, the word Christ, right? We don't use that word. It's filled with baggage, right? That uh, it takes a while to unpack. But Messiah is much more understanding to Jewish ears. Uh, and, it's very tr and it's a true word also. Certainly, very true word. Uh, and uh, Yeshua. Uh, now, sometimes we do have to uh, obviously unpack it, but the simplicity of the message is kind of what I, I want us to remember. It does not have to be a complicated word, you know? Uh, uh, I remember a friend of mine telling me that in his experience of sharing the good news, he would say that. Just like... Uh, like he would uh, have some kind of understanding for some reason to know that uh, the person sitting next to him on the bus is Jewish. And he would say, you know that, uh, you know, I'm Jewish and I believe that Yeshua or Jesus is the Messiah. Take it easy. Have a nice day. Right now. Uh, uh, why did he not feel obligated to give a, uh, a whole message? Because he knew that 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 would sink. That would have to sink in, you know, that uh, there is a dissonance there. Right. There's a dissonance. It, it doesn't like it, like when you hear Yeshua Jewish, it's kind of like playing wrong notes on the piano. You know, like it sticks with you. Right. Whoa, what is that? Uh, and uh, and so sometimes we're called to maybe give a little planting or a watering, you know, uh, and or maybe just say, you know, he's the son of God, just like what uh, Saul of Tarsus says here. Okay, and all the hearing of him continued to be amazed. And we're saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, on this name uh, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Like, wow, how could this be, as we said? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the, the Jewish people. He lived in Damascus, who, who lived in Damascus, by proving that this Yeshua is the Messiah. By proving that Yeshua is the Messiah. He was able to explain that Yeshua is the Messiah. He was obviously knowledgeable of the scriptures. Think about what Peter shared from the Psalms. And when you go back and read Acts chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 and Stephen's speech and Acts chapter 7, Saul of Tarsus, who was trained by Gamaliel, and who was a Pharisee would have been knowledgeable of these things. And so now here he put it all, uh, he put it all together. And so he was able to share by his testimony and by reasoning from the word of God that Yeshua is the Messiah. Okay, 
So now in verses 23, 24, and 25, uh, uh, we read these words. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates and night, day and night, so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. All right. Well, first, I skipped over something. I want to go back to it in verse 22. Paul kept increasing in strength, not only confounding the people, but increasing in strength. You know, you know in a way, it kind of reminds me of Yeshua when you read that he uh, was increasing in strength when he was growing up. You know, you, we read about that in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, uh, but so here he kept increasing in strength. Uh, uh, Paul was growing in his walk with the Lord. Okay. Uh, and that's true for all of us, uh, I trust. But now to understand verses 20, 23, 24, and 25 about these many days and what happens to him, we have to look at a couple of other passages of Scripture. And nobody knows, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, nobody knows exactly what the time frame is. Because you know how it is when you read especially the letters of Paul, we're on one end of a telephone conversation. We're on one end of a conversation, you know, and we don't know what everybody else knew. So we're at the mercy of just what he wrote in terms of what we know about his life, okay? So in order to understand this time frame, because I think for some of us, we're going to be surprised at this time frame. Uh, even if we don't have it exactly in the right order, the time frame is, you know, I think we can figure that out. So the first place we want to go is Galatians chapter 1. In a number of places in his letters, he wrote about his life. He wrote about, because he, he was so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God that he, he wrote about what happened to him and, you know, and, and so on. But he gives a time frame, especially here in Galatians chapter 1 in the very beginning of Galatians chapter 2. Beginning in 1.13, Galatians 1.13. Now, you want to remember, the reason he's writing this is to make the point that his calling as an apostle was supernatural, and it came from Yeshua alone, and he received the gospel from the Lord alone. That's the reason he's writing it, okay? Uh, but he writes it and gives this time frame, which is really very interesting. In 1.13 of Galatians, it says, For you have heard of my former manner of life uh, in Judaism, how I used to persecute the congregation of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. In other words, you've heard about this. In other words, uh, my story is kind of a well-known story. You're familiar with it, right? And I was advancing uh, in the Jewish world uh, Judaism is not really a very good uh, translation here, uh, in the Jewish world, uh, beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So in other words, Shaul was an overachiever uh, in the Jewish world. He was zealous. Uh, you know, he had that kind of personality. And uh, later on, we're going to talk about Barnabas 
and Paul and the perhaps the differences, uh, you know, in uh, about them. But one of the things about Paul was he was zealous. Uh, he was he would press in, you know, all the time. And so, as we said, he was very knowledgeable. He studied under one of the leading scholars of the Jewish world of his day, Gamliel, and extremely zealous, not just zealous, he was extremely zealous. Boy, that, I mean, those are two very emotional words, uh, extremely zealous uh, for my ancestral traditions. And that's why he went, at, he went after the Jewish believers, because he was zealous for ancestral traditions. It wasn't because he saw himself as a heretical person, but because he saw himself as a religious, a spiritual person, a devoted person. And this is the person whom Yeshua encountered on the way to Damascus. Then it says, but when he set me apart, even from my mother's womb, reminds you of David, and you got to wonder if he was thinking about David even at that point, you know, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Notice again the centrality of Yeshua, the centrality of Yeshua. Okay, that I might preach him, not preach about him, not teach things about him, uh, not teach his word, but preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, with Cephas and stayed with him for about two weeks, for 15 days. But I did not see any others of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Okay. Then he says, now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Okay. Then I went into the regions of Syria and uh, Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the congregations of Judea, which were in Messiah. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Now it's called preaching the faith, See, preaching Yeshua, preaching, trusting in Yeshua. And then it says in the first verse of chapter two, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Okay, so I when you go back to Acts, oh no, no, there's one more place we have to go. So another place is second, Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 30, uh, oh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, that one and two uh, mixed me up right there for a second. Uh, verses 32 and 33, the last two verses of 2 Corinthians 11, it says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aritas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. Okay, now you, now you know what people in Damascus were known as. 
times. Okay, there you go. All right. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. So this is really very interesting. He is recalling this event in that we read about in Acts chapter 9, when it says here uh, that uh, he was let down in a basket in verse 25 of Acts chapter 9. So what does all of this mean? What is this, uh, uh, what is this timetable? What did he do? <laughs> what happened to him after he uh, came to know the Lord and he was in Damascus? Okay. And so it seems that, all right, so he's in Damascus. And after a short period of time, he doesn't go to Jerusalem right away. No, he goes out into Arabia. Now, from what I understand, Syria was considered actually part of Arabia, okay? But he goes like out into the desert and then he returns to Damascus. And then he comes back, he goes out to Arabia, then he comes back to Damascus and he's there for three years. In splitting his time between being out in the desert in Arabia and in Damascus, it adds up to three years, okay? Now, one of the things that we learn is about uh, the timetable of who's in charge of Arabia, right? Uh, and it was this Nebation uh, uh, kingdom. And the timetable seems to be that when this particular uh, person who was in charge of Damascus was in that role was approximately 37, 38, uh, you know, uh, uh, AD, right? Uh, and, and, and so uh, Paul comes to believe a year and a half to two years after the resurrection, three years goes by while he's, we could call it his discipleship period. He's sharing the good news. He's, uh, you know, he's already a, a famous person going into Damascus. Now, you know, he's growing in his faith in the Lord. And, and clearly he was of the kind of personality that was not going to sit on anything. And uh, whether it be out in Arabia or in Damascus, he ruffled the feathers of the powers that be. And it got to be pretty bad. And he had to escape out of Damascus uh, in, in a basket. And, uh, and then he goes, after this three-year period, he comes down into uh, uh, Jerusalem. Okay? Uh, and by the way, his leaving Damascus, if you're familiar with uh, rabbinic literature, uh, Yohanan ben Zakkai, famous rabbi, he was snuck out of, out of Jerusalem uh, when the Romans were pillaging Jerusalem. It wasn't a basket. It was actually a coffin. Uh, and, and he was uh, taken out of, uh, of Jerusalem. So there was all kinds of sneaky ways of, uh, of escape routes uh, for uh, our people during, <laughs> evidently, during this period of time. Okay. And so they lower him in a wall in a large basket. And now it's three years later. Okay. He comes to Jerusalem and he wants to associate with the disciples, but they're afraid of him. You know, uh, they're afraid of him, not believing that he's a disciple, right? His, his reputation had been so bad that they're really skittish here. But Barnabas took hold of him, took him under his wing, we might say. 
It's really what that might mean. You know, he took him on under his uh, tutelage, okay? And brought him to the apostles and described to them, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly uh, in the name of, uh, of Yeshua, okay? Uh, and, uh, and so we see that Damas that uh, Barnabas, Barnabas, who we first read about in uh, Acts chapter 4, a person who was uh, very well known and uh, very philanthropic. He sold property and he gave it, uh, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the congregation. We read in Acts chapter 4 in verse 36, Joseph, a Levi of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. He and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, next week, we're going to see why it's important that he was a Cyprian for us here uh, and uh, had this uh, great reputation. But what we read about him, he was a son of encouragement. He was an encouragement to uh, a Saul. He took the risk, and, and he was his entree uh, to the apostles uh, in Jerusalem. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to stop here, and, uh, uh, and all I want to say uh, is, is this. Uh, everything happens in God's time. We see here that uh, Paul was, yes, in Damascus and Arabia for three years, but what we're going to see, and I'll just say it here, we'll read it in the text next week, is that evidently between the time he's in Jerusalem for two weeks and it gets so bad he has to leave, he goes away for 14 years to Tarsus, which is in Turkey. And then Barnabas goes and gets him and brings him to Antioch. Now, there is a difference of opinion on those 14 years, and I'll share that next week. But according to the simplest reading of Galatians chapter 1 and 2 is that it was 14 years later. Uh, and so a lot of years go by before Paul actually enters into the main part of his ministry. So what that tells us is it wasn't all preparation. Part of Yes, it's preparing. God is always preparing us for the next thing. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've known the Lord, you know, and never feel that anything is a waste of time, right? Uh, you know, probably he ministered uh, on his three journeys, missionary journeys, less time than, his, than the time that he was in, uh, when you add up the time he was in Arabia, Damascus, and Tarsus. Kind of like Yeshua himself. If Yeshua was 33 years old when he died and he and his ministry was, th was three years, that means it was 30, 30 years before that. And he was an adult for maybe 15 years before that. Wow, what a waste of time. How come, how come he wasn't healing people and teaching and all of that for like 20 years? It's in God's time. And what's fascinating is that in the life of Paul, in the life of Yeshua, it's like a lot happens in a short period of time. You know, and so be encouraged. Maybe you are 20, maybe you're 30, maybe you're 50, maybe you're 70, 80 and beyond. It's, it's never too late. What I would suggest is that we should always view life as 
God has prepared everything before for now, for this time, you know? And we'll talk more about that next, next week, but, but that is a very important lesson, I think, to learn. We'll look at several other people in the scriptures who have had that experience. Another thing is that his message was simple. Yeshua is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the Messianic King. The good news is not everything you know about the Messiah. The good news, sharing the good news is not the final exam of everything that you can say about the Messiah. People can only take so much, right? Little, little meals, little bits at a time, right? Uh, another thing is that he was not a lone ranger. While God gave him the gospel, while he wasn't simply a student of the apostles, he was equal to the other apostles. This is a big deal for him. Uh, that he needed Ananias and he needed uh, Barnabas in order to uh, uh, fulfill his ministry. And again, we'll expand on this next time. But boy, you know, you may not be a Saul of Tarsus, but maybe you're an Ananias, or maybe you are a Barnabas. You can't have a Paul without a Barnabas and an Ananias. Everybody plays a strategic and important role, regardless of your age, regardless of your status, regardless of what you do, it's showing up, right? It's knowing I'm called of Messiah to serve and God will make it happen. Well, we're going to stop right here. Uh, let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for uh, this uh, great narrative of, of uh, Rav Shaul. And uh, thank you, Lord, as we uh, continue it next week, we'll see all of these great lessons and and uh, just how the congregations were growing amidst persecution. Lord, uh, uh, God, may we uh, recognize that uh, uh, today. Uh, Lord, may we remember that um, uh, it doesn't matter what people may see of our size uh, or whether we're meeting all together or we're not. Uh, uh, but what matters is, is that we show up. What matters is, is that we are that living sacrifice. Lord, I pray for each one of us today that you would give us this week an opportunity to tell somebody that Yeshua is the Son of God. Even if we don't get to give the whole message, at least acknowledge that to somebody this week. Lord, may it percolate inside of us. May it bubble up like it did on, on uh, Paul. And uh, Lord, thank you for all the people, as we think about our own lives, all the people that have bolstered us, that, that have encouraged us, all the Ananiases and Barnabases in our own lives, Lord. Or the, or the Sauls that we have influenced. Lord, thank you that we are all in this together. We thank you and we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.